Hey everyone, uh, welcome to the first U2Gigs podcast. I'm Matkin, and um, with me is Axfer. G'day. And uh, what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about the U2360 tour. It's been a long couple of years, but uh, now that the tour is finally over with that final concert in Moncton, it's uh, probably time we do a proper roundup, and the podcast seems an innovative way to do it, and probably some people enjoy uh, listening to it more than they might do reading countless articles over and over again, so... Um I enjoy reading my uh, extensive written ramblings, perhaps. It's hard to believe the tour is over, really. It's been such a part of our lives, I suppose, for the last two years, one month, however long it's been. Um, it, it feels weird to, you know, load up the U2 Gigs page and under upcoming shows uh, see nothing. Yeah, I know how you feel. I mean, just just trying to think back where I was when this tour began two years ago. It's I was still an undergraduate student, and now, now I'm, well, not. <laughs> I suppose we've all gone through fairly significant changes in our lives. Uh, what was it Bono was saying at the Moncton gig before Still Haven't Found about how there have been uh, various births and marriages uh, amongst the crew and such forth? And, uh, wow, just thinking about all the world events that happened as well. <laughs> I think what we uh, really wanted to look at first up uh, was to get an idea of, you know, just how much a tour has evolved over such a lengthy period of time by uh, comparing the uh, first and last gigs. It's it's hard to even think of uh, that first show in Barcelona on the 30th of June 2009. It's oh, really been part of the same tour. I think of it as a completely different phase. I mean, like, look, looking at the stats we have, I mean, there were only eight songs that were played every single night of the tour. I mean, when you think about that, when you think how many staples have been played consistently throughout the years, like With or Without You Still Haven't Found, Mysterious Waves, I mean, between the first, well, from the beginning of Joshua Tree Tour to the end of, um, well, the end of Moncton, there's probably, what, ten, between 10 and 15 songs that have been played almost every night of those concerts, like The Golden Days of Pride and Sunday Bloody Sunday, uh, yep. One is the biggest one, obviously. Yeah, one hasn't missed a show since its debut on the 29th of February 1992. Yeah, and I mean, like, um, the, the most played song on the tour was, surprisingly, Crazy Tonight. <laughs> With its uh, double appearance at the second Barcelona show. Yeah, and I know that a lot of people were kind of uh, disappointed that they didn't either alternate it between the remix and the regular version, or just kind of drop one and bring in the other, or vice versa. I mean, um, I would have liked them to play the same show. Of uh, Crazy Tonight, but uh, then again, I don't know how much I mean that because Remix Crazy Tonight was one of my tour highlights, even if the remix was quite divisive amongst the fan base. Well, from from the beginning of the tour to the end, there were only two songs from the supporting album which were mm. played every single night, and those two were Crazy Tonight and Get On Your Boots. Moment of Surrender missed two, of course. Magnificent missed a few more. It's um, like when, when you think about it, I mean, at the very beginning of the tour, I, we're going to talk about this later with uh, what could have been on the tour, but I remember in the earliest show rehearsals, there was talks of um, even better than the real thing being played in a remix version. So, yeah. I mean, if that had been brought in and they did that as a remix instead of Crazy Tonight, then, you know, who knows, maybe Get On Your Boots would have been the only song from No London Horizon played every night. It could have been dropped at the end of the second leg. Like, Which is quite color. bizarre, given how Get On Your Boots is perhaps one of those songs that the band, as the tour have gone on, have not necessarily always seemed that committed to it, and you have to wonder if they perhaps feel a bit obliged to perform it every night because it was the lead single. I suppose we'll never know unless they themselves talk about it. But I just kind of got that feeling, especially at Glastonbury, that if they could have had it any other way, they wouldn't have put Boots in the set list. Yeah, it did seem a bit of an odd choice to me. I mean, I had a couple of people calling me crazy, but when I was tweeting on the um, U2 gigs uh, feed, it was it seemed to me, watching the concert, that the energy just kind of left the crowd during Get On Your Boots and then just rushed back in with the next song, Vertigo. To me, it seemed that the, the for the band, the energy left them playing while playing Boots until Bono amped himself up, up again during the Let Me In The Sound bit. The first two-thirds of the song, it kind of felt like they were coming through the motion. Yeah, I mean, this, as a song, it's it's very unusual. It's not just in um, the way it sounds among you two, which 
I mean, a lot of people I remember called it the bastard offspring between discotheque and uh, fast cars. But I mean, just in in the theme and the way it's constructed and the lyrics, it's just such an unusual song. As a lead single, it was very unusual. And I mean, I know everybody discussed this several years ago, but as as a lead single and one that they played every night of the tour, it was um yeah, it, it did seem like more like they felt like they had to more than they wanted to. I honestly oh, thought that if any song from uh, No Line on the Horizon. Uh, would have been played every night. It would have been magnificent. Uh, as much as I personally feel like it's one of those U2 songs, one of those very few U2 songs that was not better live than in studio, despite that personal impression, it strikes me as a song that the band, you know, liked playing. It had, you know, a solo for Edge, a nice big chorus. Bonner could do a good fist-pumping sort of thing with the crowd that really gets everybody involved. But no, it... it you know, as we as we know, tapered off by the end of the tour and missed a whole bunch of shows. And, and instead, Boots and Crazy Tonight emerged as the uh, survivors from the latest album. Yeah, ma- ma- I mean, Magnificent. I mean, that was the one song that I thought might carry over into the next tour. Possibly Moment of Surrender, although the arrangement, it's such a heavy song that it seems a bit more like Lover's Blindness between that. It almost can't carry over. It's just too heavy. It's got too much emotional impact to carry on anywhere except possibly the closing song. So, like, magnificent, yeah. And I thought initially, maybe Breathe, those would be the only two songs that would carry through into the next... Poor poor Breathe, as much as uh, I personally don't like the song. I've got to say, poor Breathe. Uh, Not even making it to 2010. At least the title track of No Line made it to 2010 once. Uh, (laughs) And and I suppose in that category, we can also count uh, Poor Unknown Caller. Yeah, I mean, that that one was um, before the final leg in North America. It was rehearsed a couple of times, although it never really saw any... Well, any any daylight. Although there are a few disputed um, snippets during Sunday Bloody Sunday of uh, reboot yourself, reboot yourself. Yeah, it's been a really awkward one. Um, that I, I suppose you know we should let our listeners know that we've kind of agonised over whether or not that should count as a snippet. And uh, I'm kind of of the opinion that while we'll count, you know, anything that's definitely a reference to another song, this one is perhaps pushing it a bit. So we haven't counted it yet. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> We've had many spirits in the debate. I guess getting back to the uh, comparison of the tour. First night and uh, last night, I mean, it's, um, like, there were, you, you said it to me earlier, there were 13 songs, I think, that were played yep. on both nights of the tour. Pretty much the second half of the set list onwards from City of Blinding Lights through Moment of Surrender was almost unchanged throughout the tour. There was, um... That's the bit where most of the 13 songs shared between the first show in Barcelona and last show in Moncton come from. Yeah, there were, there were very few changes. Um, One and Where the Streets Have No Names switched positions. MLK was dropped for Scarlet. Pride was uh, dropped for like Sunday. Sorry, uh, sorry, uh, Pride uh, disappeared from after Sunday, Bloody Sunday. And, and then, of course, it was brought back to occasionally in the second European leg and then more often afterwards. And then after that, really, the only change was Hold Me, Throw Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me, rotating with Ultraviolet. Yeah, that, um, that bit of set. But then again, that, I suppose it's been a pattern of U2 tours, uh, is that the second part of the set is often the bit that stays the most static because they do put a shitload of thought into... Uh, how to build up to the perfect, like, main set ending. They, they always go for a really big high there. And you can often tell that over their history, it's been really for about song four to song 12 of the main set is the bit that they view as the most rotational, where they can really tinker the most. Um, but when you get to the end of the main set, what they start on uh, at the first show of the tour often survives pretty much intact um, through to the end. Uh, even when there's, you know, rotations in there, they're planned rotations right from the start. Uh, and the 360 tour definitely lives up to that. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, um, Vertigo Tour, I remember that one was basically, from sometimes you can't make it on your own to the end of the main set, it was basically identical every single night. I think the only big change was um, Running to Stand Still being dropped from Miss Sarajevo. Also, remember, at the start of the tour, they were actually doing Pride Streets 1 uh, as the first encore, uh, but that moved to being um, after uh, Running to Stand Still quite quickly. Yeah, and uh, that going back a bit now, but I mean, the encores back on the Vertigo tour, that, that probably featured the most diversity in the second part of the set. I mean, they had the acoustic encore with bass cars and all sorts of random songs that we never thought we'd hear. Oh, well, yeah, the, the first time was incredible, though, of course, uh, as my uh, comment about terrible ideas just before might have indicated, I uh, much preferred the first time. Uh, later on the tour when it was in the middle of the main set uh, rather than as acoustic encore. Um, but yeah, the, the, the encores on Vertigo were actually quite diverse, whereas you see tours like Pop Mart where even the encore was basically set in stone and really didn't change all tour on Pop Mart. Really the only diversity is what, you know, what song would follow one and it was, you know, generally just played by Bono and Inch. Yeah, and I mean, there were, what, 18 songs on Pop Mart that were the same between the first night and the last night. Yeah. I mean, the, the only real changes I can think were um, Gone Moving Earlier in the Set, Do You Feel Loved, and If God Will Send His Angels Being Dropped, and uh, the karaoke changing, and the occasionally... Yeah, Sunday by Sunday. That was certainly the most uh, least diverse of you two tours. <laughs> and ironically, the first one of the internet age that we've all become accustomed to now. What's quite interesting is, uh, you know, we, we kind of look at the the huge difference between first night and last night on 360 with only 13 songs being shared, and it's basically just half the set list. But that's actually, that stat is almost identical when you look at the Vertigo Tour and Elevation, uh, where off memory, uh, 12 songs were played at the first and last shows, uh, 12, 12 songs were the same at the first and last shows of Elevation and again on Vertigo. Uh, of course, I should perhaps qualify that by saying that on Elevation, both of those set lists were only 21 songs long, whereas on 360, the first Barcelona gig had 22, but the Moncton gig had 26, so there was certainly more chance of songs being repeated, yet the stat nonetheless remains basically the same. You look Then if you look further back, uh, I was, um, we were talking about this amongst ourselves uh, earlier before recording this podcast. If you look further back, it's quite surprising uh, to see that on Zoo TV, uh, there were 15 songs that were shared between the first show and the last show. And you'd think the introduction of the Zeropa tracks would have perhaps lowered that, but it didn't. Um, though what? I guess the, I guess the um bi- the biggest um reason for that is they found the Zuropa tracks so hard to play live. It was what 1993, I think that Zuropa was actually played live three times, and now it was until, wasn't until 2011 that it was brought back. I oh, mean, the only I'm songs still, that I'm were... still getting over the fact that it was actually you know not only in the set list but played. A good... How many times was it? 44, I think. Something like that, yeah. Something incredible like that. And I'm I'm still getting over the fact that it got played. It was one of those songs where when I looked back on the statistics, um, you know, when when people would perhaps ask, you know, what songs from the Zeropa album have been played live, I'd say, oh, yeah, well, the title track, it's been played. It was played three times in 1993. It was a failed experiment. I never do it again. Uh, and so I, I'm still mind blowing and over the moon that it got into the set. I just wish it had got into the set, you know, before my last show of the tour. But <laughs> the, fact, <laughs> the fact that it was played still blows my mind. Oh, it was actually, sorry, it was actually 27 times that Europa was played. Scarlet was the one at 44, oh, which surprisingly you. puts it more than I will follow. <laughs> more than New Year's Day, more than bad. If somebody had told you. Even in October 2010, that Scarlet would be played more than those songs, you'd call them a bloody liar and toss them out. Well, I know it, I know it definitely um, made a lot of people very happy. Uh, mind, you were there, weren't you, at the um, rehearsals in Australia when they first started trying it out? Myself, uh, it was one of, one of my friends, I'll give a shout out to, um, it was um, Cooley and Two from Interference. 
Uh, he was the one, I think, who first reported it. Uh, I remember the, the confusion coming through when some people were calling it Rejoice and some people calling it Scarlet. Like, which song has been played? Of course, it was quite easy to deduce that the people who were calling it Rejoice actually meant Scarlet. Uh, there was kind of a frustration throughout the um, end of the tour with people uh, mis- mislabeling the song, uh, especially for me when I would say that Rejoice is one of the best songs on October and um, probably, you know, one of my 30 or 40 favourite U2 songs. And whenever, you know, somebody announced that Rejoice has been played, I was like, oh, I desperately wish that was true. But <laughs> I've, for years, uh, anybody listening to this who's um, followed my terrible posting career on interference uh, will might remember that I've been advocating in favour of Scarlet for years upon years as one of the best songs uh, on October and you know I felt like a lone voice in the wilderness sometimes and now it's been brought back and people are discovering it and I, I think that's absolutely fantastic Yeah, a lot of people I remember there being I mean they play it was Dirty Day at the same rehearsals weren't they but that one was through the PA system yeah it was it was, it was a bit disappointing that uh, they didn't necessarily give Dirty Day a go but we can't have everything yeah <laughs> well uh, Going back to Zeropa for a moment, I mean, it was so technically difficult, or technologically difficult perhaps is a better word, to play live back on the Zoo TV tour. It blows my mind that it took 18 years for them to be able to do it. I mean, for a song to be that far ahead of its time between being recorded and being able to actually be played. I mean, I'm sure it'll be the same for others from the album, like Babyface, which was only done five times. Acrobat from Acting Baby, which Bono has said is um, very difficult to play live. I assume he remembered from the Oh, correctly. He, uh, once a fan on the Elevation Tour requested Acrobat, and Bono said something along the lines of the edge would have to go meditate in a tree for a month before playing it. I remember um, on the Vertigo tour reading somebody on Zootopia saying um, that Bono said, okay, what do we play next? And they screamed, Acrobat! And he just kind of gave them a glare and (laughs) Artie Girl instead or something like that. Actually, that reminds me of a a funny story that shows just how much we can uh, overanalyze things at times. Um, and you know, obviously I'll raise my hand here as somebody who's guilty of doing that but um, I, I will never forget uh, it was the first show of um, Vertigo and Bono couldn't remember the lyrics to Zoo Station and he's stumbling through it and he comes up with a line about how he's uh, ready for the ball in the bat he's ready for the acrobat I remember and, that <laughs> and that immediately sparked uh, threads on interference and in other forums about how oh my god they're thinking about Acrobat. Are they rehearsing it? Will they play it? And I'm just thinking, no. Here he was just desperate for a rhyme. I, I, I still remember that from 2005. Just back and, and laugh and chuckle. That was that was good times. Perhaps more innocent times. Let's uh, perhaps um, you know get back to some of the other things. Um, uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I, I was quite impressed by uh, U2's willingness. Uh, to play new songs, completely new songs. Uh, b- before we get to that, um, one thing, one last thing that I want to discuss, which I found really interesting, is um, like the, the opening night. It opened with four songs straight from No Line on the Horizon, which was the first time since Zoo TV that they'd done that. It was uh, Breathe, No Line on the Horizon, Boots, and Magnificent. And looking at the rest of the set list, um, they had Angel of Harlem, In a Little While. Uh, the, uh, later nights, couple, well, a couple nights later, they had Party Girl, Desire, um, Stay, and um, I remember a lot of people saying, "This claw, it's just, it's so huge. It's demanding the attention. It needs real rock songs, not these kind of softer tracks like Angel of Harlem." And the, the last night of their tour, I mean, look at what we've got. We've got the f- opening four songs are even better than the real thing, The Fly. Mysterious Ways Until the End of the World. And, I mean, right after that, it goes into I Will Follow and Get on Your Boots. You know, you've got Hold Me, Throw Me later in the set. You've got Zeropa, um, not necessarily a big rock song, but still something that seems to be made for the floor, something futuristic, as we were saying just before. Uh, really, my only disappointment here is it took them until the very last leg of the tour to really nail that idea of the big rock songs or songs that otherwise fit the floor. I wish that that had perhaps been realised sooner. And ironically, at that point of the tour, a lot of people were saying, we'd really like to hear like a 
Angel of Harlem or Desire or Love Rescue Me. It's like a complete flick. Yeah, between, it's kind of funny, isn't it? Between when we got the soft songs and we want the hard songs. And when we get the hard songs, we want a couple of softer songs. You know, it'd be nice. <laughs> then again, keep in mind, you know, we did still get, you know, a really, you know, I'm not normally a fan of the acoustic songs, but I think um, the acoustic stay this tour has actually been pretty good. Um, mm. So, if, if anything, they could have just um, perhaps built on that a little bit more. Uh, I perhaps controversially think that Still Haven't Found is uh, quite expendable, uh, and they could have perhaps had, you know, two songs, like had that bit a bit more rotational, uh, and brought back some of the other, you know, softer songs um, around that point. You know, you could you could sub out Still Haven't Found for Desire and your average casual fan still go home perfectly happy that they heard a gigantic hit. Oh, yeah. But what I'd actually like to hear is, um, I'd really like to hear like, a full electric version of Desire. I don't think they've done that since Zoo TV. I, uh, I think the Vertigo tour versions were played on, you know, an electric guitar. But, yeah, it was still basically the acoustic arrangement. Yeah, I mean, like, it's such... When you listen to the album mix, it's such... At that point, it was probably the biggest pure rock song that they'd done. Yeah. And when you hear it now, it's just kind of, you just don't rock out to it. It's kind of like soft. It's a bit muted. Yeah, and I, I, I don't know, I, I'm kind of disappointed that, apart from, I guess, the Rattle and Hum film and maybe the Zoo TV bonus disc DVD, um, every, every time it's being captured, it's been the soft, more acoustic arrangement. Where yeah, it's, it's kind of the date sort of desire as opposed to, uh, the mind-blowing version on Love Town, which would sometimes lead into Edge doing basically a shredding solo. Uh, it was one of the most intense and vital moments of the show, and that's not really been... That's not really well known outside of the serious fan community. Mm-hmm. It's, it's definitely something to hope for that they'll bring back one day. I mean, you know, uh, I think this, we've discussed this briefly. We'll probably discuss it again a bit later on, but I mean, Scarla, Zeropa, Ultraviolet, Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me, they're all songs that I don't think anybody thought they'd hear again. And when you think about Electrical Storm and um, what was it, on Your Blue Room, that went yeah. from Passengers, and even before the tour, uh, from the rehearsals, there was the If God Will Send His Angels yep. uh, in full band, and what was the other one? Drowning Man, that was the one everybody wanted to hear. Oh, well, oh, I, I, I still feel like Drowning Man, if they'd had the idea to play it, if, they, if, they, if the idea to resurrect it had come to them during the tour, when they were perhaps a bit more loose... I feel like they would have done it. I feel that at the start of the tour, they had so much time to sit down and think about it that they overthought it, and it never made it. I mean, there was there was a quote in in uh, Willie's diary that I honestly thought was a bit of nonsense about how the band viewed Drowning Man as like dragging the show down. It took ages. To recover, let's be honest. You know, if they played Drowning Man, the fanatics who know it would go absolutely mental. And even if it was a downer for the rest of the audience, if they immediately went into the opening notes of Pride or Beautiful Day, people immediately forgotten and lifted straight back up and would be going mental. I, I think at first they were trying to pair it with Bad, and yeah, he said that one two, it was a one-two double whammy that was really affecting people. But I mean, I always thought that. I mean, you know, they brought back Ultraviolet, great way to open the encore, and then With or Without You, which, I mean, it's a great song, but it's just started to drag a little bit over the years, I think, and it could probably do with a bit of a rest like Pride did. I mean, when Pride yeah. came back, it sounded hugely refreshed. So did I Will Follow on the Pop Mart tour after taking a hiatus for most of the Zoo TV tour, but, I mean, I always thought that if it was put in the encore, I would say Ultraviolet, Drowning Man, and then Moment of Surrender, something like that. I mean, that would be, like, a great way to end it. I mean, yes, it's a huge one-two emotional punch for the final two songs, but it would have had such a huge impact. And I think in that kind of context, uh, you know, it would be a bit more uplifting as well than being paired with bad. You know, there's a couple of um, bootlegs of it floating around out on YouTube. There's a couple of different performances from the rehearsals floating around, some of them pretty good quality. So 
It's a bit like, I guess, Acrobat and Full Songs, so, full, sorry, full Band So Cruel now in that, you know, even though they haven't played it, you still have the live boots technically, so you can I, kind of hear what they'd sound like. Yeah, well, I, I consider myself very lucky to have heard Drowning Man at the Soundcheck before Dublin 3. Oh, we, we, you know, all of us in the line were just looking at each other going, oh my god, it's tonight the night, and of course it wasn't, uh, but... Um, Alas, it was it was still amazing to hear it. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Bless you. Well, um, going from, I guess, the, what could have been new songs live to new songs general, um, the third leg of the tour, second in Europe especially, that was, wow. <laughs> it was astronomical. I mean, we, we kind of got wind before the tour began that they might be trying some new stuff, especially uh, the song Glastonbury that Bono had written for the festival. But I don't think that anybody really would have predicted that they'd bust out five or six new songs and at some shows do two of them together. Yeah, there was, um, most of, I think most of the songs on that leg had three. There was Stingray to open. Um, oh, sorry, yes, I always forget about Stingray. I always forget about Stingray <laughs> when I'm counting... Uh, the new well, song. Never, never were sure whether to count it as an actual song or a glorified intro, but like, yeah. you always think MLK is a bit of a glorified outro rather than an actual song, but. Yeah, it's like when yeah. I'm thinking, you know, the, the new song sequence in the 2010 legs, I'm mainly thinking of, you know, when two of them would show up uh, in the middle of the main set, and, uh, you know, you, 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 you kind of forget to count. Stingray right up there at the start, um, but you know, no, nonetheless, you know, the, the the fact that we had this sequence where they were busting out, you know, usually uh, like Mercy and uh, North Star seem to be their favourites to do, but also yeah. uh, Every Breaking Wave. Oh, uh, I wish that had been done more than three times. That was, I mean, they, they described it as, oh, obviously it's my Twitter username, right? Every Broken Wave, but I mean, yeah. like that was described as being such a surging anthem and. But the, the version that they brought down was very sedate, and it was, it was actually very enjoyable. I think it was my favourite of the new songs. I mean, a lot of people, when Mercy was brought in, at first everybody was delighted, especially because the night that it debuted, I remember there being such a fantastic quality stream, yes. and um, everybody started freaking out at the same time on Twitter. I think the feed got jammed, if I remember right, but um, I mean, it was such a amazing one. Then almost immediately with the lyrical changes, because of course everybody was expecting it to be identical to the version from, what, six years ago? Yeah, um, yeah, 2004. Yeah, so uh, a lot of people were disappointed with some of the ly lyrical changes. Um, you were one of them, I remember, with the dropping of the violins and Nero line, but... Yes, so I, uh, I, I'm quite a fan of, of that line, and I also... I, I could probably get past that. I think my biggest criticism is really getting rid of the pre-chorus because I thought that really, uh, you know, the, the um, ripping the stitches bit, uh, because I thought that really led into the chorus quite well, whereas the versions that they did on 360, I think the chorus just felt kind of copy and pasted in without the pre-chorus, so it was very jarring going straight into it, uh, and I'm also not necessarily convinced by some of the new lyrics, but... Uh, 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 you know, before passing final judgment, I would love to, you know, have a studio version to be able to compare the two on perhaps a more equal footing. Or even a um, another live version, apart from the one on Wide Awake in Europe. Uh, I remember passing that one along to you, and uh, yeah. you were kind of disappointed with the way it was mixed. It seemed not quite as mercyish as it could have been, you know? If, if you know <laughs> yeah. And uh, for those who haven't heard that one, because it was, of course, very limited, it's um, for a first mix of the song, I guess, for, for a live mix, it... It's not too bad. If you've never heard the song before, you'll probably enjoy it. But from other versions that they did, even from the same night, hearing it on the bootlegs, it seemed a lot harder, a lot rocker, rockier, a lot smoother live. And something in the mixing process seemed to make it kind of just not... It didn't seem to mesh quite as well. It part of the punch. It felt a bit thin. Yeah, that's, that's the best word to describe it. But... Um, yeah. I mean, Europe was really the only one, the only place that really got those new songs. Australia got them a couple of times. Yeah, I, I got the uh, Mercy Bad double hit in Melbourne, which was fantastic, even if the crowd itself was kind of lame for those songs. Uh, but yeah, you know, Mercy 
you know, survived a little bit after Europe. And North Star, uh, I think, was the only new song that actually made it into uh, 2011, even showing up once on the last leg. Oh, Stingray showed up once as well, I remember. Oh. That showed up once in Brazil, I think. Uh, it was, it was uh, at the final show in Argentina. You know, I, I'm, I'm not totally sure why they, um, why, why they dropped the new songs, because they were so received so well. I mean, Glastonbury mm. was played, what, seven, eight times? Every Broken Wave, or, sorry, Every Breaking Wave was only done three times. Boy Falls from the Sky was done the last night of that leg, and it was only played once. Yeah, but was the, the surprising thing about that is that it was actually extensively sound-checked in Auckland. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were all kind of sitting back. I remember, uh, you know, for the first Auckland show, we're like, oh, they'll probably play it safe. But come the second show, I think a lot of us were expecting them to do Boy Falls from the Sky, and were quite surprised when they didn't. People on uh, Twitter, I remember, were kind of perhaps um, sardonically hoping for a one-two punch of Boy Falls from the Sky and Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me. <laughs> but um, It's a, a, a triple hit and puts uh, Elevation in there as well because of the uh, Tomb Raider connection. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's just the way the Spider-Man turned out. They were kind of hoping to make... I, my, my gut instinct is that they were kind of hoping to make Boy Falls from the Sky a bit more integral in the uh, Oceana legs and further on. But then with the way the whole Spider-Man musical just kept on collapsing, I don't know, maybe it had turned out differently. Maybe if the, maybe if the musical had turned out differently, maybe if they played those uh, concerts after it had come out, maybe they would have done Rise Above instead. Who knows? I, I was actually just thinking that, you know, if, if perhaps the Spider-Man musical had been, you know, an achievement, like a very positive achievement, rather than something that, while still an achievement, is also a bit, you know, of a shackle around them and has been very controversial. Uh, if it hadn't been for that, then, you know, maybe they would have done Rise Above in concert to celebrate it. Uh, or, you know, Boy Falls from the Sky a bit more often. It's It was a very busy time for the band. Um, at least we didn't get any songs or snippets referencing Malibu or anything like that. That would have just... <laughs> that would have brought all the problems together in one with... The back injury, the Spider-Man falling apart, and of course all the problems I was having regarding his states in Malibu. But what well, could have they brought into the set to reference uh, the the controversy about their uh, alleged tax evasion as well? Yeah. Well. Uh, how about a snippet of uh, the Beatles um, tax ban? <laughs> that would have been very funny. <laughs> Bono should have done that at Glastonbury just to uh, have, have a bit of a sarcastic sort of swipe at those uh, knobs who were trying to protest them. They should have included a bit of piano from Beach Sequence somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, um, Just, you know, to, to speak on, you know, the sort of protesting for a minute, lest I'd be misinterpreted. Uh, you know, I have no problem with if people... You know, take issue with what the band have done and protest them, you know, in a legitimate sort of forum. But at a concert where, you know, most of the people there just want to enjoy some music, I think that's an inappropriate time and, and people should, you know, back off a bit. But um, to get back on topic. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, we've, covered, we've covered a couple of things now. We've uh, looked, extensively looked at the opening and closing gig and kind of analysed it to past tours. Looked at a lot of the songs throughout the tour. We've looked at the new songs. Um, we've kind of covered this one a little bit already, but I mean, what could have been? There was a lot of stuff recorded or rehearsed, I should say, before the tour that are yeah. even brought in a little bit toward at the beginning that just it never took off. Um, there was a remix of Even Better Than the Real Thing, Electrical Storm, which died after three performances, uh, the acoustic versions of Mysterious Ways and Sunday Bloody Sunday, which I think would have been very interesting. Uh, yeah, so there was a lot of negative reaction at the time, especially to the idea of an acoustic mysterious ways. But I admit personally, I'm quite intrigued by the thought, uh, given how the electric MW was quite muted um, this tour. Uh, you know, I, I suppose many people remember me going on about this at length. I, I miss the solo. I think that was, you know, the key part of it live. And I think if they weren't going to do that, then actually going, you know, the whole hog and reinventing it as an acoustic version would have been much better than playing uh, what I honestly perceived as a kind of piss-weak electric version. Yeah, like every, every now and then there are a couple of songs that they seem to really either need to reinvent or they really want to reinvent to keep them fresh or just try yep. something new. I mean, um, 
Love Town tour and part of, oh sorry, not Love Town, Joshua Tree tour, I think it was, Sunday Bloody Sunday, uh, you know, look, well, look if you look at the Live in Paris DVD, it's full band as usual, but then look at the Rattle and Hum and it's acoustic, well not acoustic, but you know, it's just Bono and Edge to opener before the whole band kicks in halfway yeah, through. Yeah, it's a nice soft intro. Yeah, there's um like a lot of other songs they've completely rearranged over the years. Think of that techno version of uh, Where the Streets Have No Name during Pop Mart. I mean, Mysterious Ways in comparison, it's been very, it's, it's been almost identical from Zoo TV through to now. The only difference I can really notice now is um, that Zoo TV and Pop Mart, to a degree, had a lot more uh, piano in it, whereas uh, Elevation... Vertigo and now 360, it's all been guitar. It's just basically been the same. The only difference between Elevation and 360 is, as you say, the lack of the solo at the end. That's the only reinvention that they've done. And I don't know, I think the song's kind of tired a little bit now. Um, I'm very glad that I heard it at the uh, Toronto concert this year, um, if only because my best friend, it's her third concert, she'd never heard it before and it was her favourite song. But, you know, I mean, I do wonder what uh, what the acoustic version would have sounded like. I think it would have been such a, a neat experience. And, you know, yeah. it's good that they were looking outside their comfort zone. Yeah, and I, I wish I'd actually pursued that because I, I do think it's a very interesting idea. Um, and speaking of other things that never happened, um, they, the band before the tour, before they even went to Barcelona, uh, actually considered Wire. Uh, and as... Um, you know, an unforgettable fire fan lad. You know, that's one of my favourite U2 songs. I think it's mm. got so much, it's so much energy. It's dark, but it's dark and foreboding, but surges forward really quickly. Uh, and it's such a good rocker. And I would love to hear that live. It hasn't been played uh, since July 1985. Uh, and, oh, if they brought that back, that would have been mind-blowing, but it, it's like the companion piece to Bad, almost. Like, mm. Bad, Bad is a lot more softer, but, I mean, they're both songs about drug addiction. Wire is, like, the real fast, heavy one that, you know, it's a song that I know a lot of people were kind of hoping for at some points when they brought back Scarlet, for instance. A lot of people were saying, oh, why not Wire? That would be another great one to bring back from the past. But Yeah. I think if they ever do a tour where Bad becomes regular again, and I damn well hope that's the next tour... Uh, since I think Bad is the definitive live U2 song, even ahead of Straits. Uh, I would love for them to actually pair Bad and Wire together. Uh, play Wire first, because at the very end, it does have that bit where Bono yells a few lines right at the end, sometimes on the Unforgettable Fire Tour, and even do a snippet of um, Give Me Some Truth uh, at the end there. And you could actually just you know have him yell that and then have the first... Um, notes of the sequencer of bad come in and it would be something of an abrupt change in pace but I think in that context it would actually work uh, and it would it would also you know make a bit of a statement I think about you know int the intensity of addiction and then the long come down after I think that would be really powerful uh, and obviously this is just me dreaming aloud here but wouldn't it be awesome I think it would be I mean I'm almost wondering if maybe one of the reasons why Wire never came to fruition is, um, I mean, maybe they just couldn't sustain it. It's mm. such a fast song. It's so emotionally heavy. I mean, they at some points, you know, even on the Unforgettable Fire Tour when it was fresh and new, um, a lot of the boots that I've heard of it, they're like Edge's, Edge has trouble, it's so fast, Edge has trouble uh, playing all the guitar notes, there's a lot of uh, squeaks and squawks, and um, yep. I almost wonder if Bono could um, keep it up. I mean, his as he's gone from through his through the through U two's career, he's gone from being so raw and um, passionate. So he's become um, his voice has become a lot more mellow, almost. It's just the way it's aged, and yeah. so while that that allows for songs like say um, Pride and um, with or without you, and so on, to continue forth, because they're not as demanding on the voice, something like Wire, and I guess to other extents, maybe two heartbeat as one. Um, you know, that's just, it's very difficult for him to sustain it over the tour. I mean, Electrico is a very fast song, and um, but it's not as emotionally, or not emotionally, but it's not as demanding vocally 
as yeah, it's fun to pace itself a bit more. It's it's interesting. I mean, I guess get on your boots. Like it's it's as fast as electrico, but and or and wire, but it's not as um nowhere near as vocally demanding. I think perhaps the solution, if they were to ever want to do songs like that, not just wire, but songs of its ilk, if they ever wanted to do songs like that again, uh, if they can't quite sustain it now, uh, a reinvention uh, could be quite interesting. Um, if, if they looked at it not from the sense of, oh, we can't do it this fast anymore, let's play it slowly, but looked at it from the sense of, you know, that fast version, that fast vital version worked in, you know, the early 80s, but now we want to reassess it and look at it from a different angle uh, and played it in a different way. Then they could probably get through it, um, you know, just more thinking aloud here. Um, if they did bad and then actually had it segue into, like, it had it segue into wire and have it start soft and actually build up and gain energy until at the end there's just one big outburst, uh, you know, that is the sort of thing that they could possibly do to make songs like that work. And it would, they could, it would, I think it would be a great way to rediscover the songs and for a lot of fans to rediscover them as well. Oh, yeah, there's, there's so many great songs from the early days that have kind of been forgotten now. And, I mean, I, I guess beginning in the Elevation Tour, they've started trying to bring some of those back. I mean, uh, Elevation Tour had Out of Control for the first time since, I think, 1990. Yeah, living in a TikTok. TikTok, yeah. And uh, then, obviously, Vertigo Tour brought back a lot more from Boy. There was Encart, Dub Into the Heart, Electric Co., The Ocean, uh, Stories for Boys Snippeted in Vertigo, Gloria. Yeah, yeah, and, and on this tour, again, they did it again. I mean, with, with some more recent albums, although, I mean, being almost 20 years old, it's hard to classify, I guess, Zeropa as recent. But, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, like, Scarlet, nobody ever thought they'd hear that. Um, Zeropa was one everybody was dreaming of. Um, and, you know, scrolling down the list, there's probably uh, quite a few more. MLK, uh, I don't think many people would have thought that. I mean, it's generally showed up a couple of times over the years, it, well, each tour, but generally it's either like a snippet or an outro after one or bad or something like that. Not as, you know, a nightly staple. Yeah, and so it was a very, it was a huge surprise when that came back. Um, I, I think, others. really, when you look at U2... In the 90s, and even to a point in the late 80s when they were getting rid of um, Boy, October, and War songs, um, I think they were often not necessarily running from their past, but they were so set on emphasizing the new material that they didn't look, they just didn't look back. I don't think, sometimes it was conscious and sometimes it just didn't occur to them. Whereas I think, starting with the Elevation Tour, and increasingly with the two tours after that, They've been perhaps more comfortable with um, most of their career output and willing to really look back and bring back songs and rediscover them and realise that these songs are songs that they should look back to that still have meaning, that are still important both to the band and their fans. It really seems that the only album that they'd rather not look back to, uh, much to the disappointment of so many fans out there, is pop. Yeah, I mean... Pop is kind of a funny one. I mean, um, you know, Elevation Tour, it was still pretty heavy with pop songs. I think most nights had three or four of them. I mean, Discotech, Staring at the Sun, um, Gone, Gone, those are all heavy earlier on. And then towards the end, Please made a resurgence. I mean, I, I, I tweeted this uh, a couple of days ago, but Please is actually the most represented pop song in concert. It was yeah. played every night of Pop Mart. It was played fairly frequently... Uh, towards the end of Elevation. It was snippeted through most of Vertigo and a couple of times in 360. I mean, it's Discotheque is actually... I think, I think Please has 166 times it's appeared at a U2 concert. Discotheque is 50, 156, and yeah. then Gone is in third with 146. Well, if I'm not grossly mistaken, once you take out snippets, Gone is the most played song in full. Uh, it was it was demanded, oh, not demanded, but like a lot of people were hoping that they'd bring it back for this stage as well as uh, Last Night on Earth. That was another one a lot of people thought would really fit the stage. I, I, I think that if if we are going to talk you know, about missed opportunities on 360, 
I would suggest that failing to represent pop through any of the three of Gone, Last Night on Earth, and MoFo, that is perhaps the biggest missed opportunity. MoFo would have absolutely killed. Gone would have killed. Can you imagine, you know, Gone leading into the the, um, siren wail at the start of um, uh, Until the End of the World or being paired with Hold Me, Thrill Me in the Encore? You know, that would have been mind-blowing. And the things that they could have done with the claw. So that, to me, is probably the biggest missed opportunity. I know one of your least favourite quotes from a YouTube by U2 is when oh. Edge is talking about Last Night on Earth, and he says, is it a good song? Yeah, but it's not really yeah, our, one of our great songs. If it was, you'd still be playing it. Well, they're still playing Elevation. Now, not, not to, you know, knock people who like Elevation or anything. Yes, you know, it's fun live, but, you know, the, the, the way the quote is worded, he say, you know, the, it puts a song like Elevation on the level of Sunday Bloody Sunday. And... The problem is that they just don't, you know, a lot of the songs on their albums, after their tour, it's, you know, it's kind of just kind of discarded, never thrown away again, like, or never played again. I mean, there are so many songs, even from the boy tour, that haven't been played since. Just think of um, Shadows and Tall Trees. I mean, even then, when they only had about 12 or 13 songs, not including well, covers, that only well, showed that, three or four times. Thing, um, that you know, speaking of the boy tours, they were struggling to complete set lists with you know material that they actually released. They actually had a lot of original songs that were never recorded, pre-boy songs that they discarded even for the boy tour. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm quite a fan of um, uh, the Dream Is Over and Lost on a Silent Planet, or I'm Life on a Distant Planet, as some people know it. Uh, and you know, you can't beat Father is an Elephant. That's probably the- <laughs> you know, I, I I'm quite surprised that. Even on the boy tour, when they're struggling for material, they were knocking off all the stuff um, that could have been in the set. So it has been a pattern of U2 over time. As soon as they move on to a new era, a lot of the stuff from previous eras disappears very quickly. If you were to look at a lot of songs, maybe not great songs, but certainly songs that could have been carried through a few more years. I mean, Another Time, Another Place from Boy, uh, Fire, and I think even to, uh, Fall Down from um, October. I don't think that was played much after. That was a regular on the war tour and uh, made its last gasp on the Unforgettable Fire tour. Oh, okay, sorry. I might be, what, what, what am I thinking? I might be th- through a breakthrough window. No, that was also war tour, wasn't it? I yeah, that, that, that again made it to the UF tour, but like Rejoice uh, didn't even make it to the war tour. With a Shout didn't make it to the war tour. Scarlet uh, actually now has more live performances than um, With a Shout. And it's very uh, on fire, and it's uh, very few behind um, Rejoice now. So if Scarlet comes back again at some point, then it's actually <laughs> so probably end up being one of the played U2 songs from October. So we should clarify at this point that that's because there are so many set lists missing from before the UF tour, and especially from before the War tour. So you know, statistics for the older songs are not necessarily complete, and this is why I always emphasise that. Even like on occasion, sometimes Pride gets ahead of I Will Follow on our listing of songs played the most by U2. But, <coughs> excuse me, uh, nonetheless, I Will Follow uh, is still the most played song because there are about 130 shows where it was almost certainly played, but we don't have a set list. We simply don't know, so we can't put it on the site. But I'm it is very safe. Sorry, sorry. Uh, Probably even more dates where um, we don't where they played a concert and we're not even aware of it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, even even Scarlet, which isn't registered as being played at all on the October tour, it's certainly very possible that it was played a handful of times. We just don't know of it. Yeah, they did it at that radio session uh, in 1981. They did it for a live radio session. It was the only live performance of Scarlet before the 360 tour that we know of. But it's certainly possible that it could have crept in somewhere. And like there are a couple of um, unconfirmed reports, and I suspect they're a case of mistaken identity, but it's possible they could be accurate from the war tour that the refugee crept into a show or two. Now, like I say, I think that's a mistaken identity. The person reporting it um, was perhaps thinking of something else, but that's not to say that it could be right. There are songs, like you look at um, Like a Song, uh, uh, if, we, if we didn't have a bootleg 
or, you know, other reliable reports for the first show of the war tour. And if we just read, you know, some hazy journalistic report that doesn't necessarily look that accurate, and it happened to mention it like a song was played, we'd probably be quite sceptical and we'd say, oh, that's probably a case of mistaken identity. And as it turns out, it's not. They did play it. One. Yeah, I mean, e- even today, through these tours, our greatest source for a lot of information, mostly regarding snippetry, but, I mean, even the confusion about whether Fort or Out of Control ended at Moncton, but, I mean, like, like I say, mostly through snippetry, but the bootlegs are our biggest source of information. Newspaper reports, they just don't, they just don't have that. They, they, they can be surprisingly inaccurate. There's a report from um, one of my favourite cases of mistaken identity. This is a newspaper report from um, the U23 tour when um, U2 went to the UK in in December 1979. Um, And it reports that in the set list was Twilight. It's like, great, you know, they they got the title right. And then later in the article, it also reports a song called Boy Meets Man. And to what else could they be referring but Twilight? It's one thing when you read a report where they simply give the wrong title they give a prominent lyric rather than the actual title like there are you know a number of uh reports that give various different titles for and cat dub for instance uh mm. but how do you say both twilight and then boy meets man i really have to wonder what the journalist is getting at there or did something bizarre happen we don't know we don't have a bootleg so all we can really do is note you know in the concerts um you know, note section below the set list is to say this confusion and hope that by some miracle of miracles, uh, you know, one day a, a bootleg or a written set list or something shows up because they do on occasion. It wouldn't surprise me if uh, somewhere there's floating around an old newspaper report that, you know, nobody's really looked at yet, but it says that Silver Lining and 11 o'clock TikTok were played at the same... (laughs) Yes. And of course, a lot of people know that's the same song, just renamed. No, Um, it's it's, um, always quite interesting when you look at these old newspaper reports, uh, you know, and to see some of the uh, bizarre things that creep in there, and you just desperately wish that there were more bootlegs. But like I say, over the last few years, we have seen quite unexpectedly some bootlegs from the early 80s surface for songs that we previously uh, for shows that we previously didn't know anything about or um similarly people just you know sifting through the junk in their attic or whatever uh find that they actually have a written set list from a show we've added multiple concerts to our database uh because somebody has very kindly, you know, sent us an email saying, hey, I was, you know, cleaning out the attic last night and I discovered this set list from 1981. And I love it whenever we get those emails. Those, uh, getting emails like that is, to me, one of the great highlights of working for U2 gigs. Uh, I just love when we uncover that sort of information. And, you know, it's even more heartwarming when you then get an email from somebody else going, hey, I can't believe that, you know, the show that I went to some 30-odd years ago now has a set list, you know, it's brought all these really good memories flooding back. So that, that to me, I think, uh, is is one of the reasons why I love doing this just as much as I do. It, it always amazes me, looking through some of those earlier sets from the Boy October and even the 3 tour or the 11 o'clock TikTok tour, like, just seeing occasionally there's a review there, I mean, like, They've got really good memories to go back that far, but... I can barely remember the concerts that I saw last week. Yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> you know, uh, this is why, uh, you know, I get so desettless sometimes. It's, it's a substitute uh, for being forgetful. You know, I've got a whole folder sitting on my shelf of set lists that I've taken from various concerts that I've seen. Because otherwise, I'd very quickly go, oh, shit, was Song X or Song Y played? I can't remember. Um... Should we get back to the 360 tour? <laughs> it might be a good idea, though, <laughs> though I, I, I'm notorious for how much I love the early 80s. Yeah, so, so everything after uh, 84 is uh, drags down, doesn't it, Axe? <laughs> well, apart from Love Town. Yes. <laughs> I think um, we all know about, about uh, how much uh, I love that particular tour. But yes, let's, let's get back to... Uh, 360. Did you have anything in mind? Yeah, I think the next thing we wanted to talk... We've, we've kind of skipped ahead a bit. We, uh, we were going to talk about the songs that have been brought back from the dead a bit later, but um, I, I guess we've kind of covered that now. So if, I guess we step back a bit. We were going yeah. to look at the, um, the remasters and what effect those might have had on the concert sets. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I think 
that the, the process of the band working on the uh, Actung uh, remaster is no doubt influenced um, the set list. You listen to, um, you know, the way Bono talks when he's also talking about, you know, sessions in Berlin and, and the recording of Zeropa, uh before they play Stay. You can tell that this is something that has really come to the forefront of their minds. And in 2009, they weren't thinking of at all. Yeah, I mean, uh, back, back then it was the Unforgettable Fire remaster, and um, I know that a lot of people were speculating that the reason uh, MLK and the Unforgettable Fire had been brought back were because of that remaster, they were trying to promote it a little bit. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I would not discount that as maybe not necessarily promoting it. I, I don't know if, you know, the members of U2 are that commercially minded. Paul McGuinness might be, but, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know if, if, say, Adam is quite thinking that way. But nonetheless, you know, the process of working on the remasters, it's, it's a process for them, I guess, of rediscovery and going, hey, we should bring that song back. When if they hadn't worked on the remaster, they might not have even, it just might not have occurred to them. I know The Unforgettable Fire is one of your favourites. I hadn't shown up in about, what, um, nine, oh, 19 years or something like that? Yep, yep. You know, it, it was a huge live absence there. And I mean, like... Um, I believe you know, it just... was nine years and seven months or nine years and nine months. It was something like that anyway. Oh, it was longer than that, wasn't it? Sorry, um, sorry I was actually nine years just then. I meant to say 19 years. Okay. I wasn't sure <laughs> so, I so, you know, we can you know, just go back and uh, edit that back in. Uh, this is yeah, like uh, a, a couple of instances. Sorry? I'll definitely edit that. <laughs> it's like a couple of instances where I've just had some terrible word confusion uh, and written in articles uh, that, you know, this happened in... June 2009, when what I really meant to say was July, or vice versa. Uh, <laughs> there are multiple examples over the years of me mixing up month names. Something shocking. Well, um, do, do you think that possibly the, um, like, I mean, I think the Boy, October and War remasters were released in 2008, if my memory serves correct, um, or possibly early 2009, but um, do you think that maybe that might have doing that might have brought back to them even more clearly the idea of drowning man? Yeah, I, I have to wonder. Yeah, those, those remasters were two thousand and eight, um, and yeah, I, I have to wonder if, if that brought up the idea of drowning man, but it never really led to anything in the end, sadly. And I suppose also the thing for those remasters is that perhaps they happened just a bit too long before the tour to bear more fruit. Uh, and also, you two would have looked back and gone, well, hang on, on the Vertigo tour, we're already celebrating those albums. I guess the celebration of them might have, you know, in part led them to some of the work they did in the remasters. I mean, the remaster was inevitable, but you have to wonder how different the content might have been if they hadn't already been celebrating um, mm. those albums in 2005 and um, to a much lesser extent, 2006. Well, it makes me wonder, um, like, what, what we might have to look forward to in the future. I mean, um... Pop Remaster, are we finally going to get, you know, our <laughs> worship mofo? Well, I was thinking more Rattle and Hum, but, um... Yeah, well, that I, seems I, to be the, um... Uh, yeah, it's the, the bastard child of the group, I suppose, and that they've gone straight from the Joshua three to, through to Act Tung, and you can perhaps understand, given that the band themselves have a very high opinion of Act Tung, and don't necessarily seem to remember Rattle and Hum in uh, the same favourable terms. But, uh, you know, we saw a brief glimpse um, on at the end of the Australian League when they were playing, you know, Desire and Love Rescue Me, that, you know, that, that sort of glimpse back into Rattle and Hum. And are we going to see more of that in the future if they do a Rattle and Hum remaster? Will, will I finally get my wish of Hawkmoon 269 coming back or God Part 2? Or will they stun us all by playing Heartland live for the first time? But I do hope that at some stage in the future, um, you know, a Rattle and Hum remaster of some description happens because there's a lot of unreleased material from that era. One thing that I'm kind of think would go on um, the remaster really well would be a lot of the bonus footage that they got when trying to film Rattle and Hum. I mean, there's some great, great cuts floating around on YouTube out there, but uh, there's uh, some Out of Control, I think, was filmed. Um, Spanish Eye, great rocking hill, uh, great rocking version of that. Um, and probably, I think, the most, the best version of Mothers of the Disappeared I mean, anybody can just search Mothers of the Disappeared on YouTube, you'll find it. It's about nine minutes long, but 
it is probably the most emotionally charged performance I've ever seen, even though it's unreleased. And, uh, like, I mean, they plan to, side note, kind of trivia, but they plan to originally end the Rattle and Hum film with it. And they were hoping to make Mothers of the Disappeared the final song from that point on instead of 40 because of it, even though yeah. it never came to effect. But, I mean, you know, there's, there's so many great songs from the album that could be brought back. I mean, even better than the real thing, everybody loved hearing that again. And just think hearing um, God Part 2, which hasn't really been done since the Love Town tour. A bit of trivia oh. on that. They are actually um, considered, uh, well, they, they rehearsed God Part 2 before the third league of the Zoo TV tour. They were looking at bringing it back. It never made it to, you know, the rehearsals that we all know um, in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Um, But they they did give it at least some consideration um, during the downtime between the second and third legs. Another one very rarely played from the album, one of my personal favourites, is uh, Hawkmoon 269. I mean, I think it was played eight times in Love Town and then it disappeared except for one performance in Elevation where it was mashed up with Desire and Running to Stand Still. I, I think that the extended, the, the ethereal slide guitar intro, slide solo intro um, for Hawkmoon 269 when it opened um, eight Love Town shows is one of the most beautiful things uh, in U2's live history. And the song itself, you know, just built up. It was just amazing. And it's also one of those very rare examples of Bono playing guitar and playing guitar very well and in a very important role in the song because he plays the rhythm through that song uh, quite prominent and quite effective. One of my Wikipedia colleagues, uh, his username's Murbabu, um, named after a mountain in Australia. He, he's an Aussie. And um, he was at those uh, shows where Hawkmoon opened back in Love Town and He's often told me that um, one of the, uh, like when he first heard it, he thought that it was like a really unusual remix opening of Streets or something like that. But, and I mean, you know, it's, it's just, like you can kind of hear it, I guess. But it's yeah. really, it would be great to hear that song again. I mean, you know, there's a lot of great songs that should be brought back from the dead and maybe those remasters can help with it. Um, okay. One idea that I want to kind of bring up now and maybe it has a little bit of credence is... Um, possible remaster of uh, Passengers, original soundtrack Swan. I mean, Passengers, it was, it's was it been ignored, basically, by U2 since it was released. There was one performance of Miss Sarajevo on the Potmark tour, in Sarajevo, naturally. Then it was brought back on the Vertigo tour. And then, on the third leg of the 360 tour, of course, Miss Sarajevo was brought back again. But before uh, that... I th- think you mean... No, sorry, sorry, I'm, I'm correcting you for something that you did write on, so keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Well, of course, even before Miss Sarajevo was brought back, there were a couple of um, other uh, passengers' references in the show. Your Blue Room was brought back, and I, I was—I mean, I saw it in Toronto, Your Blue Room, and that was absolutely fantastic. One of my favorites. And um, theme from the Swan was used, of course, as um, well briefly, but it was used in uh, an intro video to, for Ultraviolet in the encore at some later gigs on that leg. And then there was one show that had a snippet of Always Forever Now. Yeah, so, I mean, one of my favourite U2 songs of all, let alone from the album, is Slug, so I was kind of hoping out that that would get a reference during the tour, but, uh, you know, dream out loud. <laughs> but, <laughs> I, I, I've often wondered, you know, if if they ever do decide to, you know, revisit Passengers a bit more, if they do a remaster or something, if it coincides with an arena tour, some of those songs could be used really effectively in that kind of closed, in a bit more intimate sort of environment where they they can really go nuts with the lighting to create a great you know a great atmospheric vibe through a hall um and i think songs like like slug uh always forever now and your blue room uh would work sensationally in that context and something that i've advocated for years that i think would work easily in any kind of context is Lots of people want you to to bring back October before New Year's Day. Well, I say, sure, that would be cool. But why not do beach sequence leading into? Mm. I've, 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 I talked. Well, I advocated it to you multiple times during the show. I thought what would work really well would be um, Slug going into Streets. I mean, I don't yep. know how many people uh, listening to this have heard Slug before. I mean, you know, we're kind of going on about it. Passengers is. Fairly obscure. Um, on the at YouTube polls for favorite songs from Passengers, the only songs that really get any 
clicks on it are Miss Sarajevo and Your Blue Room. And because that, they were the ones that you know are actually released on a mainstream thing, Best of yeah. yeah, and um, and Miss Sarajevo, of course, a lot of people got exposure to it through the Vertigo tour and 360 tours, but and all the other songs basically ignored. So I'm, you know, a lot of people may not know Slug. If you haven't heard it, go to YouTube, type in uh, U2 Slug or Passenger Slug. There's a great uh, fan film that somebody did where the song is set against uh, 2001 A Space Oddity. It's probably my favourite video I've ever seen on there. But, um, I mean, you know, I, I, if you listen to it, I mean, the, the guitar, the piano, just the atmosphere of Slug, it would blend so well into streets. I mean, I was picturing it every single night of the tour, just thinking how amazing it would be to hear, Don't want to feel the same. You know, I, th- I just think it would have worked so well. Don't want to change the frame 